You're standing up here doing it. In the early service, I read the first part and the congregation responded because it's much smaller than this. And I'm, I'm about halfway through and I was ready to roll my eyeballs. But you know what? God gave us that psalm on purpose and Asaph wrote it that way on purpose because he's trying to get something across. Here's what I, why I chose this for Thanksgiving Sunday sermon. Because most of the time, we think of Thanksgiving, we think of stuffed turkey and stuffed person. Nothing wrong with that. I have no problem with that at all. I'll do the same thing myself. But what I'd like to do, if I could this morning, is to take us from being stuffed and eating the stuffing and being stuffed to looking at who is above and beyond everything else. The reason you're even here, in fact, is my favorite verse of this whole thing, who saw us in our lowest state. Now, we'll talk about what that means, but he saw us. He knows us. He knows our circumstance, and he wants us to have our gaze, our focus, our heart, our minds, our emotions focused on him. That's called worship. And I'd like, if I could, to have your attention, as, as obnoxious as going over and over it can be, to get your mind in that direction. Because he is the one to be worshipped. I've got to tell you, there are those this, today who we have everything and we're like, it's hard to be thankful. Oh, we're thankful, but we're not really enthusiastically thankful. Because we've got everything. And so we don't appreciate much. Then you might be sitting there and going, and it's hard for me to be thankful because I feel like I've got nothing. Oh, I didn't say you're not going to eat stuffing, you know, and turkey and all that kind of stuff. It's just you feel like you've got kicked in the gut. You've got your feet kicked out under you. And what's there to be thankful for? You know what? That's where you are. But today the focus is not on you. It's on him. That's my challenge. Keep our focus in the right spot. Keep it where it belongs. Now, this word loving kindness, as you can say, I underline two phrases here. The first one is unilateral. When we talk about the word loving kindness, it is a unilateral act. It's a unilateral command or whatever else you want to put in there. It's all in one direction. It is what I do. It does not have to do with the other person's response. So if God's loving kindness is forever, which it is, it means this is what he does regardless of what I do, you do, or the whole world does. Because he is indeed loving and kind. There was no good English word to translate the Hebrew word. So Miles Cloverdale, who uh, actually printed the first full English Bible invented the word. It's not a transliteration. It is a word that he just stuck two English words together to make one concept. And it still will not suffice. That's why we have to do this long definition. Because without explanation, there are not adequate English words to describe what this word fully means. It does mean loyal love, covenant fidelity. It does mean goodness and kindness and graciousness and mercy. It means all of those things. But you can't really put those all in one big long word. You'd have that supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Did I get that right? 
Okay, you'd get one of those words which, you know, it's not even, is that in the dictionary? I don't even know. But loving kindness is the best we've come up with so far. If you have a different translation of the Bible, some places it'll use a few other words like kindness some places and love other places and um, goodness, I believe, other places. It'll use those words, but it's always this one Hebrew word. And it is that relationship that is based on unilateral goodness, unilateral grace, unilateral kindness, unchanging unilateral love, and unilateral mercy. In other words, it is what I choose to do and say and act upon, regardless of what that other person does. You notice that a lot of that is the New Testament definition of agape love. And so... Having the word love in there is good. And kindness means I'm doing something for the other person they don't deserve. i got to tell you, if you're going to be this kind of person, which God tells us to be, we didn't get that far yet, but we are to not only experience His loving kindness, but we are to be that way toward those around us. And i got to tell you, that's hard. No, it's not hard. Very, very difficult. Nope, it's not very difficult. It's impossible for you to do that. Because unless you first experience it, and unless God is actually, you give God permission to do it in you and through you, you can't do it. That's what it comes down to. So this is not something that you can drum it up and say, okay, after this sermon, I'm going to be loving and kind. I'm going to do this. Only if God is working in your life and you allow him to work in your life and through your life, can you actually even experience this and love God in this way and love those around you in that way. In fact is, before we actually get to the text of Psalm 136, like you do, and, and you, you can turn to these if you want, but I'm going to be right on them and then back off. But there, this word is used over and over again in the Old Testament. And a couple of those will give us more of the meaning of the word than Psalm 136. Once Psalm 136 says, here's the principle, and this is why uh, you should see God as loving and kind. But other places will give us more of a definition. In fact, is the first one we're going to look at is in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 5 to 8. And it says this, a voice, call, uh, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its, my version uses loveliness, loving kindness of the grass. Okay, so that's how it's used. It's like the flower of this field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. We, in our loving kindnesses, are very fickle. We're here, and we fade, and we dry up, and we blow away. Not his. What he says is forever. His word stands forever in contrast with us. We are frail. We are weak. He is not. And what he says is what he always does, regardless of what anything else happens. Now, there's a problem here. Because we know from the rest of Scripture, God is a demanding God. He demands 
perfect righteousness. Perfect holiness. And yet, we are frail. I just said that. It's another way of saying we're sinful. We have an old nature. How in the world do you have a loving, kind God who wants to fellowship with us and wants us to fellowship with him? Uh, You have his loving kindness, which seems like kind of mushy, but yet he has the demand for righteousness and holiness. How do you put those two together? It always comes down to one thing. It's why the church, those that have trusted Christ, are called Christians. Because it always comes back to one person. God's perfect righteousness and holiness, our frailty. He loves us, but he cannot do away with his perfect demand of righteousness. How do you solve that? There's only one position, one place, one person, one event in all the world that solves that. You know what it is. It comes to the cross. Uh, Will didn't know what I was using today, but if you follow the theme of the songs that you sang this morning, they talk about love and the cross. This sermon is not based on the New Testament, but it's the cross and it's the love. You see, God's righteousness demanded everything. His loving kindness reached out to us in grace and mercy. And the only way he could reach out is a price had to be paid. And that's the price of sin. That is death. That is perfect blood. That is Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament sacrifices could not make it possible for God to fully show his loving kindness and yet still be righteous at the same time. But all the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices and ceremonies and celebrations and festivals all pointed to the one who would make it possible for a righteous God to at the same time be loving kind without violating his own holiness. And that all comes to the cross. When he died for our sins, he paid the price, made it possible for God to be with man and man to be with God. That's the only way this can be fully carried out. It always comes down to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way that it can happen. In Exodus chapter 34, one of those classic verses that are passages actually that has a lot in it. It says, And the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, big contrast coming up, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That shows the perfectness. He has to punish sin, but at the same time he's absolutely loving and kind. Only Christ can fulfill that. There's no other possible way to extend that fully to us and for us to fully appreciate it. But he also gives us a demand. He says, this is the way I deal with you. I deal with you in loving kindness. But this is what I expect from you. There's a verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You may know the little chorus that goes with it. We're not going to sing it. But this is what it says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness. By the way, that's the word loving kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. If you're sitting there and you say, you know what, this sermon's not for me because I am a loving, kind person. I'm, I, I live that loving kindness. You've just violated the last one because you're not very humble. Because you're saying you can do that on your own. So you already violated it. Sounds very simple of how I can be right with God. Love justice. Loving kindness. Humility. Very simple, but I'll tell you what. Try carrying that one out. Like I said before, you can't do it on your own. You cannot drum up enough time, energy, resources to do that. But we can if we allow the loving kindness of God to flow through us and we accept what he has done for us. Basically, I looked at that and said, okay, how does that come out in the New Testament? We can never give a sacrifice for our own sin. That's already been dealt with. But he does tell us that we are to be living sacrifices. And so what we are simply doing is our life, not a dead sacrifice, but one that lives and takes the justice of God, the loving kindness of God, and the humility that he gives us, and we pass it on to the next person. That's what he wants us to do. That's how we live for the Lord. But in Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 to 7, he says there's a problem with this. And um, this is the last one we're going to do before we get to the text. But it simply says there, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty, your loving kindness, is like the morning cloud, like the dew which goes away early. You know exactly what that's talking about. You have an illustration, especially in spring and fall, where the weather changes and you get up to go to work. Your whole car is drenched in dew. You can't even see to the end of the driveway. It's that foggy. And we say the sun, when the sun comes out, it burns that away. That fog lifts. It goes away in the light and the heat of the sun. The dew, which you go, everything's wet. you got to scrape your windows off if it's cold enough because it, it freezes on there. Short time, it goes away. It just goes, poof, it's just gone. He said, that's what our loving kindness is like. On our own, that's as far as we get. It looks good, but it doesn't last. It doesn't continue on. He says, therefore, um, in verse 6, um, he goes to say, for I delight in loyalty loving kindness rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dwelt treacherously against me. The best we can do, short-lived and treacherous. He said, we're like Adam. We've transgressed the covenant. Adam had one rule to keep, one rule. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he broke it. By the way, so did Eve. She did it first. He just followed after. But he's responsible. The point is, we break everything. We are not loyal to what God said. He is absolutely. His loving kindness is everlasting. Ours is like Adam's. I don't know how long it was after Adam was created that he broke that that covenant, I, I see it as days at most. I'm not even sure it was a whole day. Personally, I, I just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I know it was short. Because we are not loyal. He is loyal. This is loyal love. It's reliable. 
It's sure. It's steadfast. It's faithful. That's who He is. So when you see loving kindness, you, don't, you just need to remember. It's love. It's kindness. It's grace. It's mercy. It's keeping your word. It's being faithful. That's what loving kindness is. It's all of those put together and all put in one principle, one word in the Old Testament. It's kind of hard to get a hold of. But let's look at what the Bible says. The first part, the first three verses, is a call to praise. Do you need to be reminded to be thankful people? The answer is yes, I do also. It is so easy to grumble and complain and be miserable. It is so easy to do that. It comes natural. It does not come natural to be thankful. It really doesn't. That's a part of a, a character issue that comes with the new, new uh, nature. And we always have to fight that. And so the psalmist calls us first. He says, give thanks to the Lord. The word thanks there, we, we, we think of some, saying something. But the word really means to throw something. It's like a baseball pitcher throwing the ball to the batter, to the bat catcher. You're taking what you have and giving it back. That's what he's telling us to do. I've shown you my kindness, my love. I've given you everything. I want you to give it back. That's a worship. That's worship. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It says, give, to the, uh, give pray, thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is the one that is worthy. He is the one that's pleasant and agreeable. i got to tell you that you get together with your family and friends for Thanksgiving... There will be somebody there, almost every family has one, that will just be an irritant. The turkey won't taste quite as good as it should have. The dessert just isn't as sweet as you thought it would going to be. Because this one person, for some reason, has got to be obnoxious and, you know, ruin it. Isn't it the way it is? By the way, churches have them too. Your workplace has them. Your family has them. It's around. But God only is good. He's the only one where it's always pleasant. It's always, he's always worthy. That's the way it is. This world doesn't have that. And so this morning the call to praise is thank Him. He alone is the good one. His, everla- his loving kindness is everlasting. But it goes on in verse two, 2 to say, Give thanks to the God of gods. Now notice... In case you were wondering, there are more than one God. But only one with a capital G. There are plenty of other gods. In fact, is when God talks about those other gods in the Word of God, He uses something very unique. He says, the Lord your God is a jealous God. I will have no other God, small g, before me. He's a jealous God. They're usurpers. They are, they're, they're false. They are made up by man. In fact, is it's pretty interesting because this psalm ends with this. And I think it's really neat. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting. See, he is the only one that is designated as the God of heaven. All the rest of them are by the, the mind, the imagination, and the craft of man. And i got to tell you, I don't care what the name of that God is. 
It can be anything from materialism to a, to a statue to a philosophy. I don't care what it is. It was invented, crafted, imagined by man. But we're talking about the God of heaven. He is the God of gods. There is no higher authority. He is the, where the buck stops, and he is where it all started. But he goes on to say, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Every one of you has a Lord in your life. No, you've got more than that. If you're a child, you've got one or two of them. They call them parents. If you're an employee, you've got one or two of them, maybe a couple layers of them. By the way, if you're an employer, you have one too. It's called the United States government because if you don't pay taxes, you're not going to be doing much business. You have a Lord. We've got presidents and we've got officials and we have everyone answers to someone we all do i don't care who you are and the church we have organization there are those that are rulers owners those that are over somebody else it's the way it is that's god's design there are lots of those but he is the lord of lords nothing wrong with those others that's what called organization in most cases But he's the Lord of lords, and he is different than those. You may have a lord at work that you go, he's not a lord, he's a dictator. You know, he's just a pain. You can do that. Your spouse, who you answer to, you may have problems with that. I mean, you kids, you may have problems with your parents. I I don't like them. They're not fair and all this kind of stuff. That's true. But he's the Lord of lords. And this lord has as a showpiece loving kindness. Wow, that's different than anyone else. Oh, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a, a leader at this church, and I'll tell you what, I don't always get it right. You don't have to be around here long to know that. He gets it right every single time. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the ruler. He's the master. He's the owner. And the call here is he's good. He's God. He's Lord. But why do we do that? What are the causes for this praise? It says, to him who alone does wonders. This is not the natural thing. We do okay as people doing natural things. But he does things above the natural. Supernatural. Things that only God can do. You could put the word miracles in here if you chose. Because it's things that we on our, in ourselves and of ourselves cannot do. They're extraordinary. They're surpassing everything we could do. He alone can do those things. I cannot. But he goes on to say in verse 5, To him who made the heavens with skill for his loving kindness is everlasting. Did you notice the word there? It says heavens. That is plural and that's correct. Because there is more than one heaven. I think what I'm going to do on Wednesday nights for our prayer meeting Bible study, I'm going to do an expanded study of the heavens. But for this morning, suffice to say, there are three heavens that can clearly be identified in Scripture. From the very beginning, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens, plural, and even if your version of Scripture doesn't have an F there, it belongs there because it is plural, the heavens and the earth, and that is singular. 
So from the very beginning, he said there are heavens. So we know at least there are two of them. Well, the scripture fairly clearly identifies at least three. The first one is characterized over and over again in the scripture by the place where the birds fly. It is our atmosphere. It would include the clouds, essentially wherever there's oxygen that life can exist. That is it. It's our atmosphere. It's where the birds fly. He calls it in Genesis chapter 1, the expanse of the heavens. And he goes on to say in verse 20 of Genesis chapter uh, 1, Let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. That's where the birds fly. That's the first heaven. We don't normally think of that. We think that is atmosphere. It's air. It's uh, where life can exist. But the Bible uses the term heaven to cover that. But then in Genesis chapter 1, he also goes on and says that he put the sun, the moon, and the stars in the heavens. You know what it says. The sun to rule the day. The moon to rule the night. Oh, and and just as an afterthought, and this just always makes me smile, uh, he made the stars also. Now, we know because we've been around for a while and we've observed some things I don't, is it millions, billions, or trillions of other stars? Nobody really knows, I guess. There are a lot of them. He said, oh, he also made those. And we know that many of them are bigger than our sun. It's huge. But to God, that's nothing. He made the heavens. Not only the air we can breathe so we can exist, and the birds can fly, and we can get rain from the clouds, but the heavens where all the celestial bodies are. And then he says, and by definition, there's a third heaven. The Apostle Paul actually gives us that one. We already saw from the last verse, he is the God of heaven. That's his place. That's where he dwells. It tells us other places that his throne is in heaven. It's basically the presence of God. How it was made, what it is... It's really, really difficult. We have some clues to what it's like when we get to the book of Revelation and a few other places. But I'll tell you what, it's pretty sketchy. It's beyond human imagination. But it's where God dwells. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that it says that he was caught up into the third heaven. And you know the result of that. It says, because of the unspeakable things that I saw, I was given a thorn in the flesh that I wouldn't exalt myself. Here's what he was saying, is I saw things that are so phenomenally awesome and above and beyond anything you people know. He could have walked around the rest of his life saying, you know what, I know stuff that you don't. I'm not allowed to tell you, and I saw heaven. God told him, you're not allowed to speak of those things. And he also was given a thorn in the flesh to remind him, you better not be arrogant about this. You better not be proud of this, that I have, this privilege that I have given you. Being caught up into the third heaven. The very presence of God. Wow. So, God made them. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, his, ever, his loving kindness is everlasting. He made the heavens. Wow. You could take weeks. You can spend whole courses of study, and people do this, just studying all those things that are in the heavens whether it's the birds that fly and the clouds that rain or the sun, moon, and stars. It doesn't matter. You could spend phenomenal amounts of time 
explaining those and exploring them. And we're continuing to do that. I have often believed, and I still believe, I've often said and still believe, that the end result of all good education is that we stand in awe and wonder of what a great God He is, and it expands our understanding that God is bigger than we ever thought He was. Unfortunately, the world is not telling us that. They're saying it happened by chance and all these other things. No. The end result of education. So I'm not anti-education at all. It's just like, the more you know, the bigger God has to be. The better concept you have of how great and how big and how awesome He is. That's the end result of it. It's beyond my imagination. It goes on. Uh, in the psalm, in, starting in verse 6, he, he spread the, the earth above the waters. Now, this might be talking about what Mike Snavely talked about, uh, the flood. I don't know. But I think more it's probably talking about when God said, let the dry land appear, and it came up out of the water. And there was dry land, and then there were the oceans. Could be the, all that water that's under the earth also. I don't know. It could be both of them. But the truth is, no, that didn't happen by chance. He is the one that has given us all of these things. And he goes on in the next verses to just expand on a lot of these things, uh, way beyond our capacity to understand them. Continuing on uh, in the, the, the verses as we look at the causes for praise, he says that, he, in verse 10, he smote the Egyptians. Now, we all know the story of God bringing the Israelites out from the nation of Israel. We all know that. And we, it's a great story. We've known it from the time that we were children. But he goes back and says, this didn't happen by chance. This isn't something that was easy. He, and he alone, went and made it possible for his chosen people who were slaves for hundreds of years to be brought out and brought out with power. In fact, is in verse 10, he says, to him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. Later on in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, we know without a doubt that those judgments, those plagues that came against Egypt were not random. They were against the gods of Egypt. And the last one also, the firstborn dying, was against the gods of Egypt. Because Pharaoh's son was God. That's the way they saw it. And that plague touched the, that last God, the son of, of the Pharaoh. God did that. He did it in his loving kindness, his covenant fidelity to his nation that he had chosen. He brought Israel out with a strong arm. I mean, obviously, they were the military might of the world at that point. So God was stronger than the greatest milita military. <clears throat> we also know that he divided the sea. They crossed on dry land. And then as the chariots came in, they realized, whoa, something's not right. They turned around and started heading for home. I mentioned this last week or the week before. They turned around and were heading home. When the waters came back in, they were headed back to Egypt. And God said, I'm not letting you get away. Israel's gotten away, but I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to punish you for what you have done. And it comes down and all 600 chariots and the horses and all the men that were with them all drowned in the Red Sea. That was because God 
is loving kind toward his people. He keeps his word. Even though Israel had done nothing to deserve it. In fact, Israel is a good example to us because we do the same thing over and over again. They thumbed their nose at God. They went off into sin. They did their own thing. They worshiped false gods. They did everything wrong. And God never quit. That's exactly what Christ does with the church. Because I'll tell you what, if I was Christ about 2,000 years ago, Acts chapter 6, I would have said, what a mistake. I'm going to do something different. But he didn't. He is faithful to us. Like God was in the past faithful and continues to be faithful to Israel, bringing them out and preserving them. And to this day, the nation that shouldn't exist still exists. And in the future, it will still exist, and he will bring all his promises to them. And then, after they rebelled one more time, he took them around the wilderness. If you remember the story, they get out there, and the next day, they are to go into the promised land. They said, we won't go. God said, okay, you're in trouble. The next day, they changed their mind again. Say, and he said, okay, you wouldn't go in? You're going to wander for 40 years. The next day, they changed their mind and said, we are going to go in after all. And they get defeated in battle. And for the next 40 years, all those 20 years old and older die in the wilderness. But God provides the whole time. Even during a time of punishment on their sin, judgment on their sin, he still provided them. Why? Because he's loving and kind. I propose to you that we could point our finger at Israel all day long. We could point all ten fingers. But I'll tell you what, you'd be better off going like this. Because we do exactly what they did. And i got to tell you, when he said, if you trust me, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's exactly what he meant. He is loving and kind. His loving kindness is indeed everlasting. He does not leave us to our own devices. He is above and beyond that. Of course, I said before that he wanted, wants us to continue that, doing that to those around us. And then it says on the heels of the wilderness, 40 years, now they're going into the promised land. They're quick going around circles, now they're heading for the promised land again. They come to Sion. They said, we will pass by the king's highway. Essentially, it goes like this. Out here is the turnpike. On each side of the turnpike is a fence. They were saying, we will go down the turnpike. It wasn't paved, but it was right through their land. And we will stay inside the fences. We will not molest anything on either side of the fence. We will just take the king's highway. We will not bother you. He said, nope, not going to let you do that. Come out and fight. It came out and fought against them. And Israel defeated them. They were a military power. They were defeated, and God said, I will give you their land. They go to the next king. He basically does the same thing, and they defeat him, and God gives that land to them. What, they, what these kings were going to do for evil, God turned around and gave the land to his people. Why? Because Israel is such a great people? Absolutely not. All they did is moan and groan. You know what they did in the wilderness. They're miserable. But he is a loving, kind God. That's what we need to be thankful for. Now, I'd like to conclude, because I believe there's a conclusion that goes to this. And this is the verse I like out of this whole thing. Who remembered us 
in our lowest state, in our low position, in our little worth. The worth we have is because He created us and gave it to us. But i got to tell you, we have nothing to offer. Just like the nation of Israel, the smallest of the nations. It had nothing to offer God. But He looks at us. And i got to tell you, this is that walking humbly with God. Because if I think I've got it all together, I'm not being humble. But He sees us right where we're at. You may feel you are lower than low right now. i got a dumb saying. It's like you may feel like you're lower in a snail's belly. That's pretty low. You're so low that the only way you can look is up. That's where you may be. Guess what? He doesn't abandon his loving kindness when you're there. He sees us and remembers us in our lowest state. When we think all else is lost, when we are so low we can't imagine being any lower, he still keeps us in mind. He still works on our behalf. And notice what it says in verse 24. He has rescued us from our adversaries. He is the only one that can save us from those that would do us in. And I've got to tell you, and I'll be first to tell you, the person that does me in is not anybody in this audience. It's not anybody outside of this building. It's not anybody in my family or anybody I work with or anything. It's me. (laughs) My biggest problem is me. My biggest enemy is me. And my old nature, which I all the times allow to be the Lord of life. He rescues us from ourselves and from all those other things around us. And now verse 25. We had to go the whole way to the 25th verse to come to American Thanksgiving. Who gives us food? (laughs) Yeah, the stuffing and the stuffed. He gives it to us. But he does that. But not only just to us, but it says all flesh, all living things. He is the one that provides. And then he ends with this. Give thanks to the God of heaven, the only true source of all of our, our, the only true focus of all of our thanksgiving, all of our praise is him. He's the God of heaven. Nothing else comes close. We lose that, folks. And I hope today You see, that loving, kind God is the one that is and only one that is worthy of our focus, worthy of our praise, worthy of our thanksgiving. And why is that? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you that without you, we're nothing. In fact, as you made it clear that you remember us, in our lowest state. When we can't see anything, it's dark, it's hard, it seems impossible. We don't have anything to be thankful for, we think. You still remember us. You still work at that time. Lord, you're the God of heaven and we're men of low estate. But I thank you because of your loving kindness that indeed we have a life that's worth living here and now. We have a hope in heaven that's worth looking forward to. And Father, we know that everything we need on the journey has been provided by you. Lord, help us to be thankful, grateful, praising people because you 
have shown us your everlasting loving kindness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God.